internet, he cannot drink. He takes tiny little baby sips. My name is Matthew Kroll. And you are a bad influence. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Emily the Criminal. Should we do it in our, should we do the entire episode in an NPR voice? Like Dunk Dunk. Welcome. Uh, uh, <laughs> welcome to NPR's The Only Podcast About Movies. Today yeah. we'll be discussing John Patton Ford's debut film. Emily, the criminal. Shahir, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a long and tiresome day. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I just had uh, a delicious factor meal. Hashtag not sponsored, at least this part of my life. Okay. Uh, uh, But I will say I like them quite a bit. Huh. I guess you could say they're factoring in the amount of savings you're having today. (laughs) Stop. I'm going to peek on my microphone. Um, Anyway... (laughs) Let's never do that again. Why not? I like it. I like it. Uh, no. I want us to be I want us to be arbiters of of tact and taste on the radio podcast networks, uh, yeah. but that is not what we are. We are no. here to discuss Emily the Criminal. But before we discuss Emily the Criminal, we discuss a few other movies, specifically some emails that we got. And unfortunately, Matt, I don't know if you've got the doc in front of me, so it might just be me reading these emails. Out. I don't, but I can pull it up. If you read the first one, I'll read the <laughs> next one in your doc. Well, I'm try- I'm, I am I edited some of these down because I wanted to make sure that uh, we didn't give away specific spoilers. Because, <laughs> because, two- you love, <laughs> because you love censoring people. Well, also, these two emails are about a specific scene in a specific I know, I know. film that we just reviewed, which was Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, and there was one particular scene, uh, we had our fantastic guest, uh, returning guest, Izzy from BK Rewind on that episode. Nailed it. <laughs> and uh, there was one specific scene, which seemed to be a... Wait, here. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Am I looking at your first untitled document or your second untitled document? Oh, you're like, it's all untitled. <laughs> it's the second untitled, <laughs> the first untitled. The one that says, last modified by me. Oh my gosh! Okay, well, there's there's the first email. Okay, all right, I'm ready now. It, it, it chuckles you to no end that I didn't title these documents. Yeah, keep organize your shit, man. No, I'm not. Organizing. I forget you 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 by trade are a director. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I by trade uh, initially before I was a cartoon on the internet was an editor. <laughs> I know you edit. Yeah, of course. But, uh, no, but I I, yeah, I don't give a shit. I just throw yeah. shit where it lands and hope that uh, one day it'll make sense to me. You're a fucking monster. <laughs> I am a monster. <laughs> There is one project I'm editing right now, which is like, uh, I think it is 12 layers deep of versions, Fuck. and you got you got to see like as an editor, you will you will uh, you will be aghast at at this. Anyway, uh, Jacob writes us in to say I was surprised to hear that the sequence in the Fablemans where the school bully falls apart was a hard mm-hmm. one for you to all get a read on. Now, I hope that wasn't too much of a spoiler. Is that? Do you think that's a spoiler? No, it yeah, probably yeah. fell apart. So I want Jacob continues. So I wanted to pass along my take. For me, I found the ideas and themes and scenes to be very cool, but the execution and setup within the movie to be a bit sloppy. Hmm. This idea, though, of fra- fragileness whilst trying to maintain some image of oneself is incredibly interesting. So throw on top of that the idea that Sammy can do uh, to the hero lead of what he captures on film. Sammy makes Logan into a heroic figure far beyond that perfect jock image he play he struggles to maintain and i think that is the key element that leads to his breakdown something along the ideas that um of you've made everyone think i'm a god and i have to live up to that uh knowing that i'm just a man or in this case a fragile teen bully uh, that's pretty much my rate on the scene overall the fablemans consistently hinted at something really cool some really cool ideas like this and got me pretty emotional just from the hinting but failed to really hook me in uh, by cohesively exploring them i really 
we should have dug deeper because the fact that it is Spielberg does really add something. Knowing that the bully was based on reality and felt that way, and knowing as well uh, that Spielberg is directing an actor to play that kid now, who then will have to watch his performance on screen, well, that's just fascinating. I think this film maybe could have dug a little more into the meta-esque subtext and made some clearer statements about the power of cinema, because if someone could get to uh, make those statements, well, it seems like Spielberg is the guy. Uh, But maybe there is something as well to that restraint to honoring his own story. Best Jacob. P.S. I recently saw After Sun in theaters and I really dug it. I will probably try to see it a second time if I get a chance. Probably instead of Bardo, uh, though I almost want to see Bardo now because if I'm going to see it, uh, it's going to be in theaters. Uh, not nearly three hours in a room at home alone. Ha! Uh, thank you, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> the ha was uh, yeah. my, uh, my interpretation of that. Um, there thank is you, a Jacob. second email about this particular scene. I guess what we're saying here is uh, this is this scene and how to read this scene is... Obviously, one of the cre- uh, the central crutches of how to of, of whether your mi- how far your mileage will go on this particular film, as sure. you recall, mileage for the three of us certainly varied and didn't go very far. Uh, any any further thoughts on? Uh, well, I mean, if we want to if we want to read the second email, and I can do that. Yeah. I I actually because I haven't given the Fablemans a second thought since we recorded that episode. Sorry, yeah. uh, but while listening to Jacob's words read uh, with, through your melodious voice, I did actually think I nailed another reason why that scene doesn't work for me. But I can hold it until we go with Hassan's email. Uh, Kellen's email actually, which oh, is uh, I- to deal with the Fablemans. Let's see. Oh, because he did it in the thing. Okay, here we go. Okay. <laughs> Kellen writes. Like true director. This is going great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Kellen writes. <laughs> Hope you're both doing well. I really enjoyed your episode on the Fablemans, but was bummed that it did not click with either you, either of you or Izzy. Nevertheless, listening to the discussion and hearing your thoughts was a delight as per usual. You are too kind, Kellen. Um, back to the email. One element that connected to me that I don't think you discussed was Sammy using his work as a coping mechanism to have a sense of control. He took the situation in life they were out of his control and dove into filmmaking as a way to rewrite the narrative. I don't know about you guys, but when personal stuff, family drama, or life in general stresses me out, my emotional reaction is to dive into my work, to write and edit whatever copy I can, because at least I have control over what goes in the next day's newspaper. Concerning the school beach film, I saw the whole scene as Sammy portraying life how he wishes it could have been. The one anti-Semitic bully was shown as a fool at the school and the school laughed while the other bully was shown as this hero Sammy wished he could have been. And the breakdown in the hallway afterward is the bully realizing he can physically control Sammy, but Sammy can emotionally control everyone else to make the narrative what he wants. They both know the facts are different from the truth, and Sammy controlling that truth terrifies this kid. I could go on and on, but I'll just leave you with my top five Spielberg films. And he says, West Side Story, Saving Private Ryan, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Schindler's List. Thanks again, guys, and Izzy for the wonderful discussion and insight, Kellen. Thank you, Kellen. Thanks, Kellen. First off, uh, I wonder if Kellen would be interested in our discussion of the paper since he works at a newspaper, mm. uh, which we did uh, with the Test of Time podcast. Uh, I can't even remember which how long ago that was, but that it was, was forever ago. Uh, a delight. Uh, any more thoughts on on the scene? Because I, so, I, I have thoughts. So the, I think I think one of the main reasons, and these are all great takes. Yeah. I like them very much. Yeah. Um, specifically, what Kellen says about they both know the the facts are, are what is true, but Sammy's controlling the truth now. He's in control of it, and that's kind of terrifying. I buy into that to a point, mm-hmm. but. I think in that particular scene, and again, I don't think this is spoilers for the Fablemans terribly. Mm-hmm. Um, the way he reacts, the way the bully reacts is not in a, oh, God, he's in control now sort no, of way. No, it's not, is it? 
it's it's in a like uh it's in a like why did you angry do that? yeah angry at the thing but like not scared of Sammy. Yeah. And I, I I have more thoughts on that, but I don't want to spoil sort of the the emotional sort of crux of what's going on there. Here's what I will say though, and I think another reason why this scene doesn't work for me. Yeah. It's the most fableish moment of the Fablemans. Hmm. Because I think what uh modern political discourse and media has shown us is that if you make a bully look good, they're just going to bully harder. And I know not everyone is the same, but, I mean, if you picture any uh, uh, political party member that you disagree with sort of having a real puff piece done about them, they're not going to go crying to the director of, like, how did you, why did you make me look like that? Like, yeah, you it's, know, it's I, not, it's not the same. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true or real to me. And and the problem is, is that Spielberg describes it as this is the way it happened, and that and that's fine. But it's not clear watching the film what happened. Like I know, I understand it can be confusing, even you know, like to recall your reality and and like try to put it back together again. Um, but the but it's not clear watching it what's happened. Yeah. And 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 this is a really bad analogy, given that the film is dealing with anti-Semitism. So this is a terrible, terrible analogy. But it's oh as boy. though, imagine if Lenny Riffenstahl had made the the Olympiad and the athletes were pissed off that she made them look like Greek gods. You know what I mean? Like, like you're like, what, what? You know, like, what? There surely must be more to mind to, you know, to, to the depths of this to, like, figure out what is going on here. And then the other thing is, um, uh, in terms of, bully characters and, and like realizations of bully characters i think one of the best tellings of this is rob reiner's stand by me the river phoenix character um i think his name is chris uh who you know the, the what happens in that movie is that everyone perceives chris river phoenix's character as a bully and the audience and will wheaton's character never see him that way and he is struggling with how he is perceived and what he's really like um and I think it's a much clearer sense. It's really weird, though, because we are we are critiquing Spielberg's memory of events that he experienced in real life, and by all accounts, is recreating uh, sure. exactly as he thinks. I think but, the problem is is that the film recreation doesn't make clear that. At least for me, I'm glad for Jacob and Kellen. It did. The film doesn't make that moment make sense. Yeah, like I don't care how much sense it makes in Spielberg's own personal life. I'm watching a movie. <laughs> like I, I wasn't there. So if you're if you're showing it. Like, it, it also doesn't even make sense in a like, oh, this is confusing. I don't understand what's happening kind of way. Like it, it, it the scene makes it seem like that we're understanding what's happening, but I certainly wasn't as an audience yeah. member. Hey, <laughs> but listen, I'm glad it works for people. I never want things to not work for people. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. Uh, one last email from Hassan. Uh, this email came a while back, by the way. So apologies to Hassan that we've uh, taken a little while to get to this. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I recently finished listening to the episode on Doctor Sleep, a movie that literally wowed me. The Shining is one of my favorite movies ever. And initially, I had no reason to see the film because I was on the mindset that there was absolutely no way a sequel uh, to The Shining could do well. And after seeing that film, I'm surprised at how manage, how well it manages to carve out its own identity, despite being in the shadow of such a legendary film. I absolutely agree with you here that because the film takes so much time to set up, uh, that the 
set up that when the bad guys start to die, it never comes off as a shock. Though my one great main gripe is with the film is with the character of Snakebike and Snakebite Andy. Uh, the way her character is introduced, I half expected this to be a conflicted character because she is now dependent on this terrible cycle of hunting other people who shine forever. Her hatred of men angle uh, also went nowhere. Instead, she just becomes another member of the group and disappeared into the ground. Otherwise, great film. Like Matt, I also plan to add it to my collection because physical media rules. Uh, <laughs> great film, great episode. Can't wait for Shahir's thoughts on the excellence that is Samurai Cop. <laughs> I'm adding the laugh here. It was in the email, sure, so I'm going to sure. read it out. Huh? Uh, P.S. Every episode should start with Matt yelling, Shazam, from now on. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Is that going to be a thing? No. Uh, but, you know, maybe. <laughs> uh, no, we did it. We did it for Shazam. Oh, okay. I think. I think we yelled it for it a while. It doesn't make sense that we would do it for The Shining. <laughs> no. Uh, thank you, Hassan, for that email. Dr. Sleep, uh, it's rested on my Blu-ray case, baby. Like, I love Dr. Sleep. I revisit Dr. Sleep, I think, maybe last... In, t- in 2022, I think I watched it three or four times. Wow. I think it's. I think it's so good. I, I started watching it again, um, but I was not in a mood... I was, I, I was not in the mood to watch a child being hurt when I started watching it, and I was like... As opposed to your other moods where you're in the mood to watch a child being hurt? hurt. Yeah, exactly. Um, Also, uh, another Steven Spielberg um, connection, which was that, uh, I know you haven't seen Ready Player One, but uh, there's a massive, massive homage to The Shining in Ready Player One. I've read Ready Player One, so I do know... Wait, was there... Yeah, there was a Shining thing, I think. Is it in the the book? I don't know. It's in the the movie. I think it's in the book. Either that or I saw the moment in the trailer. Right. Okay, there you go. Um, one last thing before we get to Emily the Criminal, and it oh, is criminal boy. how long we're delaying this at the start of this episode. But I just wanted to point out that Sight and Sound had, it, had its annual, or it's its decentennial, I think it is, once every 10-year poll um, of the top 100 films as voted by both critics and directors around the world. And this is, of course, uh, Christmas for me as I open to see what the what the day would entail. My 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 film group uh, all bandied about what thoughts we would, uh, what, what would potentially usurp Vertigo back at number one. I like uh, the word bandy. Yeah, bandied about. Bandied about. Yeah. Also, uh, in there will be blood. There's the bandy track, which uh, which huh. uh, he's always trying to he's always trying to get. Anyway, uh, the of course, uh, as we discussed, Citizen Kane has often topped this list. Uh, Vertigo uh, famously usurped it, and Tokyo um, Yusajiro Izu's Tokyo to- Drift to- Tokyo Story once usurped it as well. Oh, uh, I want to read you the top ten because. I think this has prompted us to. Uh, d- uh, we have a new film that we need to discuss, uh, which is not a new film, but number ten. Singing in the Rain, directed by uh, Gene Kelly and Stanley Doonan. Great. Number nine, Man with a Movie Camera, uh, Dzeko Vertovs. Uh, number eight, With a Bullet, Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. from David Lynch. Uh, number seven, Beau Travail, from Claire Denis. Number six, 2001, A Space Odyssey, by Stanley Kubrick. Number mm-hmm. five, In the Mood for Love, directed by Wong Kar Wai. Number three, and then these are the ones that don't seem to move positions. Just Wait, did you miss number me. four? Uh, sorry, number four is Tokyo Story, 1953 by uh, Yosujiro Uzu. Number three, Citizen Kane, uh, directed by Orson Welles. Number two, Vertigo. Not my favorite Alfred Hitchcock film, so I'm always surprised at how... I understand why it gets up here, but it, it, it's just not my favorite Hitchcock. Uh, and then number one this year, jumping up from, I believe, position 39 or something in previous years, is Jeanne Dalman, uh, 23 Cas du Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. Uh, from director Chantal Ackerman. Uh, this 
caused quite a stir on film Twitter this week as people decried the wokeness of the sight and sound list and, um, uh, how, you know, kind of marveling at how a film that had, you know, oddly, you know, placed around the 40s or something like that suddenly jumped up to the greatest film of all time, according to this list. Forgive um, me forgive me for not knowing how the the criteria for this, what, every 10-year thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, like... What is it, like? What's the what's the pool? They so is there a group of people that work for this place that then just decide every ten years what their favorite ten movies are? Credit, uh, so Sight and Sound magazine, which is run by the British Film Institute, um, reaches out to filmmakers around the world, directors around the world, and it's quite a sort of a prestigious thing to be invited to, mm-hmm. and it's quite a large pool uh, of uh, both critics and uh, directors sure. uh, who contribute to this list. And basically, every one of those people creates a list of their own, it is sent in, it is tallied, it is tabulated, and this is the outcome. Um, so it is made by critics and filmmakers. Um, and you, and in order to be invited, you kind of have to be a critic of note. Um, in order our to, our invitation, our invitation lost. In For the example, um, they what they do also include uh, director lists as well. Um, and I'll read you. Uh, I, I picked out two director lists uh, that I thought would relate to us. Uh, Edgar Wright for yourself. Uh, I thought you might be interested in his top ten, uh, which goes Mad Max Fury Road, Raising Arizona, An American Werewolf in London, Madame D. Uh, which is the earrings of Madame D. Mm-hmm. Taxi Driver, Don't Look Now, Singing in the Rain, Psycho, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, Asghar Fahadi, who I picked, picked mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time in the West, Wild Strawberries, Tokyo Story, The Godfather, Raging Bull, The Apartment, City Lights, Bicycle Thieves, Rashomon, and Lestrada. So these are, you know, and I guess the criteria, you know, there, there's often things thrown into the mix that um, people will try to champion. But if if not, uh, if there's not a consensus on those films, like yeah. if there's not a number of people voting for that, they will tend to be they'll tend to drop away. And you'll just see films that get repeated will circulate up to the top of the list. A couple of really fun ones, the things that happened this year is uh, the list is often being criticized as, as only including films from like the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Sure. Um, and so now we have films from 2001, uh, you know, from the early noughts in there. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the newest uh, one of the, I think, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Get Out are two of the newest films that have entered into that list. Um, what, like the, oh, is it like a more than a top 10? It's a, yeah, it's a hundred. Uh, ah. It's a hundred films. And uh, Get Out came at 95 and Portrait of a Lady on Fire came at 30 something. Um, so I think a fascinating list. I love, I actually personally, because I, there are three films on the top 10 list that I have not seen, uh, and this will prompt me to go see those. And uh, Jean Dalman, uh, Dialman is uh, notorious, you know, it's a three and a half hour observational film uh, about a woman who is uh, moonlighting as a prostitute while living her ordinary uh, daily life. Laura Mulvey wrote the essay for Sight and Sign magazine about it. It's um, funny, when I read the description, I got like, because longtime listeners of this show know that I really love Umberto D. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same. It's not shot with, this movie's not shot with real people. And it's not, you know, whatever. It's a different movie. But like the description mm-hmm. felt like a lot like what Umberto D's subject matter kind of was uh, at least following. Yeah. And so that actually got me very interested in in checking it out. I just think, I think it's great because like, again, I've always wanted to watch Jean Delman. Um, you know, I think. Uh, uh, Liam Bellingham over at Uberbusters, the Roma podcast, has written extensively about it. I think he wrote Chantal Ackerman a letter or something like that. Liam, message me if I'm incorrect about this. Um, but uh, I've always wanted to see it, and I've never, you know, like 
the what's great about the list is the list has prompted me to go see it and um, or to, to to seek it out. It's currently streaming on the Criterion Channel, um, and I think it is a little bit difficult to get a Blu-ray of it now. But I also love that this film is now you know has now entered the pantheon in in one year as being the greatest movie ever made, as Vertigo did, as Tokyo Story did, as Citizen Kane has many years over. Um, so for me, you know. That's that's only a bonus in terms of like I haven't seen it. I will go see it now. Whether I agree or disagree will be a different story. But but it doesn't really matter, you know. Like yeah, the list is, it, is arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I know uh, your hatred of lists. I actually just hate like um uh, this. This isn't the same thing. But like you know, I've become disillusioned with the Oscars, the Video Game Awards, or even this. I think it's tomorrow if the day we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, look, we we've we've talked about what award shows and awards kind of are in the entertainment space, and they're but both. This is not that, <laughs> but this is this, this feels a little bit different. No, of course, but, not. this is this is like imagine every game developer picking their favorite game of all time. Doesn't matter. Well, that's kind of what the Game Awards tries to do, uh, but it is just a big commercial, right? Um, I don't whereas, think uh, they're trying to sell out Gian Delman Blu-rays. No, 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 yeah. no, no. So what I'm saying is. Um, how do I put this? The I'm less interested in the order of the list mm-hmm. per- personally, and I'm more interested in what what uh, socioeconomic or or emotional beats in 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 the collective consciousness of moviegoers in the profession, one way or the other, led to the specific choices that were made this time. Like what? Like what? What is the cultural zeitgeist thing that moved the needle in this direction? Because I'm I'm going to assume uh, that it is a prestigious enough thing where it is not something that is uh, manipulated in any way, and they're actually doing their job, and you know, etc. So that's Uh, that's what I I don't think anyone has ever accused the BFI. Exactly. No, and and I'm just saying because for a lot of this stuff, eighty to ninety percent of it, I feel like like when there's lists or awards or whatever, like it's more of a thing. This doesn't feel like that. So I'm just saying I'm going into this uh, question with an open sort of like, okay, this is all accurate. What are the what are the social movement factors that like cause this to happen? Like uh, I think uh, like you'll see in the academy, the the actual breadth of the academy membership is changing, where mm. more women and people of color are being invited to be part of the academy. Um, there are. You know, there's always complaints about the list as well in terms of uh, not a lot of South American films are on the list, but the first mm-hmm. African film was on the list, Tukibuki, this year. Um, so I think, you know, just the demographic change of who is included and who isn't, because a- this list started in 1952 and has been done every 10 years since. Um, and exclusively in 1952, you didn't have a lot of women voters. You didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, female critics writing in. You didn't have a lot of people of color writing in either. Um, so that that has changed the dynamic of the list. It's interesting then that Vertigo and Citizen Kane and The Godfather tend to like dominate the list in terms of like are always in the same position. I actually um, don't think it is because if you think of culture, if you think of um, basically staples of the industry or cultural institutions, no matter who, if you are studying film based on the Hollywood model, no matter where you're from, you're fed that shit. And I'm not saying it's not good. I'm saying it is the thing that you are taught from that thing, so it is something that is always top of mind. You might also very much connect with it, but I feel uh, but, like it's, but, it's, it's which which is very fair. But uh, but I would say that there are certain cultures where Citizen Kane is not the most important movie. Oh, a thousand percent. You know, like, to, but it so sounds like carry. this is a bit of this sounds like this is a bit of like sort of rank choice voting in a way. So if if Citizen Kane is always number between number six and three. 
of everyone's list across the world of, course, yeah. of, of different demographics yeah. because it is an institution in the Hollywood system. And again, I'm not saying it doesn't deserve to be there. <laughs> I'm just saying it, there's an interesting correlation to how film is taught and talked about that you could probably bring back to this, which brings me back to my general question. Like, wow, what what caused this thing? And I think your points are very good uh, about like uh, to change the number one spot so drastically. If you were talking about economic power or uh, political power, this would be a really good demonstration of America's soft political power in the world. Oh, that was pop culture, you know. That's like, yeah, yeah. This is a yeah. really good example. Anyway, of that. It's super interesting. I yeah. think it's I think it's neat. I love that it's every ten years. That's every 10 just years. fucking and, cool. And I and I uh, I. I'm glad that it will prompt us. I'm likely to do an episode about Jean Dalman, a film we that talked about Nike doing it this, would never have done. Yeah, we talked about doing it this week. I just uh, sadly, I'm in the middle of. Uh, if you follow me on Extra Credits, the channel split that we're doing right now, we're switching our uh, our channel on YouTube uh, to do gaming on a separate channel called Extra Credits Gaming. Right now, if you uh, would be so kind, go sub and check that out. Uh, we're going to be delivering you some more gaming weird stuff over there and keeping all the history stuff and whatever. No one's losing content. It's literally, you know, we're just splitting it up because the algorithm is a beast. <laughs> um, but so I could not sit down and watch a three and a half hour movie. Uh, I just couldn't do it. I was shocked that I fit in Emily the Criminal, to be perfectly honest. Well, you're going you're gonna to rock out to Avatar, though, aren't you? Because we're all going to rock out to Avatar. That movie is going to make a billion dollars. Great. Um, uh, and it's three and something oh, no, hours. I th- I think I'm going. When's it come out? Uh, I don't know. In a week or something. I don't know. Early. Re- <laughs> I actually don't know. I haven't got tickets. Early reviews are out. People are flipping out over it. Um, you know, it needs to make over a billion dollars in order to break even at this point. Uh, and sure. early. I mean, I don't think. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I mean, it's an original property in a market saturated by billion dollar movies that are IP franchise driven. May I make a May I make a prediction? What's that? I think. I think it coming out right now is its best shot That's also because because Cameron. there is there is hardcore fatigue of that machine right now. Yeah. Uh, and this will elevate that even further. So and remember, the first Avatar, despite this sort of um, thing about it having no cultural footprint, changed the cinema landscape, you know, radically. Um, so, From a technical standpoint, yes, a yeah, thousand percent. So so I mean, you could argue that the 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 visual aesthetic of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in, in so much as the early adopt, uh, adoption of 3D, the way The Hobbit used 3D as well. You know, like, remember those early days when everything had to be in 3D? I think yep. that, you know, like, that's that's kind of a big deal. That sucked. So let's see what let's see what Avatar does. Again, never bet against James Cameron. Uh, but you know who you might bet against is Emily the Criminal. I don't know. Never bet against Emily the Criminal. I know. She's pretty fucking fierce, man. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us what Emily the Criminal, directed by John Patton Ford, is about. I would be delighted to. Down on her luck and saddled with debt, Emily gets involved in a credit card scam that pulls her into a criminal underworld of Los Angeles, ultimately leading to deadly consequences. So deadly. So, Matthew Kroll, how did you enjoy Emily the Criminal? Uh, this movie fucking rocks. It's great, right? I, I think this movie is dope as shit. Uh, I, Aubrey Plaza, I don't think I've ever seen her in a thing that I have not liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just liked her in it. I feel like every project that I've watched that she's been a part of, I have overall enjoyed, at least in my brain. That's what I say. Listeners of over 400 episodes of this podcast, please feel free to email me in and prove me wrong. Um, onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Um, but this was sort of like a... Um, <clears throat> 
it's funny. I the I, I guess I told a slight fib when I said I hadn't thought of the the Flickermans or the Fablemans. <laughs> Damn it! Uh, uh, since the podcast, because after I watched Emily the Criminal, I kind of like said in my head, I was like, "This is what emotional resonance feels like." Hmm. Like like the way that, and again, this is a uh, well, actually, I don't know. They're both kind of fantastical in their own ways, depending on what how you define that. Um, the the. The methodology and the reasoning and the sort of like just, you know, backseat of Emily's life that you take and you sort of go through in this thing is just fascinating and feels uh, hard mm-hmm. uh, and and um, and something that is highly relatable to a lot of people being in crippling debt basically after school or or being in in the uh, in the legal system. Uh, being punished for a crime, uh, and they will go into a little bit more of the details of. But uh, but one one time when you did something bad that that based on whatever your ethical uh, scales are are weighing at the time, uh, neither here nor there. That one thing kind of ruined your opportunities for the rest of your life, so you are only left with opportunities kind of for more crime. Right. Um, so I mean, this movie is saying a lot with a little. I think uh, it's a movie that felt very timely to me, especially in in twenty twenty two. It just felt very like, yeah, this is all happening to a lot of people all the time, and uh, I don't know. I I was enamored with it from start to finish. Um, I have I have a you know a problem here and a problem there that we'll get into, but like overall, I I just I I I left this movie feeling. Uh, like I'd been told a story from a perspective that like, and again, not like a drastically different perspective, but a perspective that I hadn't seen exactly before. And I'm always a real big fan of stuff that makes it feel like makes even well-worn territory uh, of, of criminality and, mm-hmm. and uh, small time to big time crime and fraud, like feel fresh again. Mm. Um, Sheer, what about you, buddy? Yeah, so uh, this was recommended to us by Zishan Alim uh, a while back, who was just insistent that we watch it, and so it was mm-hmm. it was kind of great that we had uh, a little bit of time this year, this week to catch up with it. I think what what makes this film work uh, so well, especially as a first film from uh, uh, Ford, is super that impressive. It, by the way, it's 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 really focused in on the pressure points that are applied to Emily as a human being. The very first shot is a close-up of Emily as she is being interviewed, and it is an oppressive, an yeah. oppressive moment because of the, uh, the weight that is being put on decisions that she has made in her life and what, how those decisions will affect her uh, moving forward. Uh, there's a great book by um, uh, David, uh, David K. Schlipler, Schipler, uh, which I read many years ago called The Working Poor, uh, which talks, uh, the, the central thesis of The Working Poor is that nobody who works hard in America should be poor, yet many people who work in menial jo- uh, jobs and tasks in America are poor, and they're called The Working Poor because they're saddled with debt, they may be, um, their, their, their jobs revolve around the, the pleasure comforts of the middle class, uh, but they will permanently, almost in a caste-like system, stay in the lower class because of the debt that they are saddled with or the the oppressiveness with which they are uh, being costed against. So you it, know, it rents, costs a lot of money to be poor in America. It costs a lot of. It, that's the thing. It costs a lot of money to be poor in America. Um, it's a great book, by the way. Um, really, really interesting read, and also terrifying because what it highlights to you, and as this film does, is the 
especially in America with medical debt. Uh, you know, this is the, you know, medical bankruptcy is, it only happens in America. Uh, and it's a, it's a baffling thing. Uh, but like one small misstep in America can cause bankruptcy, can cause, you know, financial ruin, mm-hmm. um, and can be devastating. And it just, in most parts of the modern world, this doesn't happen. Um, so it's, it's a really fascinating thing. And of course for Emily, uh, here it's student debt. Now the film that I, in comparison that I actually wanted to remind you of, uh, was, uh, the worst person in the world. Um, the Joaquin Trier film where we talked at length about, uh, at the beginning of that movie, how it might seem flippant to Americans in particular, how easily that main character in that movie changes her mind about what degree she's going to pursue. At one moment, she's a, you know, she's going to be a doctor. Then she suddenly switches to being a photographer. Then she suddenly switches to being a chef. Then she suddenly switches to being a writer, you know, and she's a, and she makes these like what seem like flippant decisions, but she comes from a culture where students are not saddled with debt in order to pursue the things that they are passionate about. So she comes from a culture where you can passion, you know, like you can choose to pursue your passions. You can go from doctor to photographer. That's not to say that doesn't happen in America, but student debt currently sits at one point seven trillion dollars, um, and uh, you know is is regarded as one of the most financially devastating uh, factors in people's growth in life. Um, especially in the case of Emily, take, going to an art school and being saddled with $70,000 worth of debt. As we learned kind of early in the movie, she paid $400 towards that debt last month, but that only covered the interest payments, which is being added every month as well. Um, I think uh, it's also true that student debt is one of the only debts in America that cannot be discharged through bankruptcy, so you can never get rid of student debt. Um, and the forgiveness plan that it was uh, slowly pushing forward, even though not perfect, is now being stuck in mm-hmm. the gullet of bureaucracy. Thanks, Kentucky. Yeah, I, I think, think it was. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. So, um, I, I, I love that the foundation of this film is very much. Uh, both unique to America, for one, but also uniquely true in terms of the pressures that she is under um, and and how difficult that is. And then she's a young woman as well who is witnessing her friends, um, her best friend, you know, like living the kind of media uh, media entity life that you and I did where, you know, like you get you get sent on trips across the, you know, across the planet. You get to work in a fancy office with free coffee and that sort of thing. Um, I, in fact, I remember, I think it was on the podcast, you and I, I talked about this, uh, mm. where I mentioned the fact that uh, although it does happen in New Zealand, um, internships are not as big a factor in New Zealand. Right. And um, it's a very, again, another very unusual thing. And Emily says it out loud in the scene, in one of the scenes later on to Gina Gershon's character. She goes, I just can't quite wrap my head around how you can ask a person to work for free. And it's like, it's, it's just so cut and dry in terms of like what, you know, what it it cuts across the entire argument about what internships are, should be, and why we do them, uh, or why they exist. Um, which I think was just such a, like, um, you know, Aubrey Plaza's performance in that scene is so good, uh, that it just really, like that to me was the most powerful stuff in this film. When it got into the story of credit card fraud and how we, you know, like, dummy shopping and 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 how people kind of basically create an alternate economy an underworld if you speak mm-hmm. um you know to to subsist against the actual economy um i think that was like it was a really fascinating 
look into this world. I, I presumed, again, having not watched trailers, not watched anything about this movie, that the, from the title alone, I was expecting somewhat of a heist movie. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at, I'm looking at IMDb right now. You look at the poster. Yeah. She's in heist pose. Yeah. You look at the, the still of the trailer. And she's like in an uh, car, like a overall type shirt and like a baseball yeah, cap. Yeah, you get you're getting your Ocean's Twelve kind of yeah. vibe to it. But but it's not that at all. In fact, the criminality is is surprisingly mundane, and it's it's surprisingly um, simple. You know, like it, it's mm-hmm. basically just stealing credit card numbers and uh, hoping that you don't get caught. And you eventually know? a car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, Emily proves to be. Uh, particularly adept at uh, being responsive to the situation there, which again uh, um, endures her to uh, uh, Yusuf, and and I think you know, look, the film perhaps towards its back end feels a little thin in terms of where it goes, but it's also a first film made under a budget, and it's the kind of role where I go. This is this is what I want from a first film. You know, it's like it's really tightly told. It gives me a demonstration that this person understands character and storytelling really, really well, yeah. and and doesn't lose focus of what's important. Because what's important here isn't the heist um, or or the machinations of how you know, like these criminal a criminal family will kind of be pulled apart. But what's important is the reasons why Emily gets to that point and how she's going to react to it. And I think um, it's just a really smartly told, tightly constructed film that does that job so well. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, this is give me more of this. You know, like, yeah. uh, you know, like it's, it's not a question of like, oh, now I want to see what this person does with a big budget. I was like, give me more of this kind of really focused um, character work. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, also, uh, Yusuf, played by uh, Theo Rossi, who I first discovered on the Luke Cage Netflix show. Oh, there you go. Um, uh, does a phenomenal job, I think. And this is one of my favorite performances for him. Um, he brings a level of humanity to crime. Right. Like again, he's not. He's not a. He's not a creepster, right? Like he's not a. No, but yeah. like he's he's doing what he has to do to eventually. Oh, I mean that. I mean you could get into this, but he wants to own a building. Yeah. And like for his not only for his mom to live, but also like. So he could be a businessman. So he could be. So he could be whatever. Uh, so he can be a landlord, basically. And you know, you can get into the ethics of being a landlord, uh, depending on what you, how how that is treated. Um, but uh, that is one very prominent way uh, to get out of the poverty cycle in the United States. And uh, he's enlisting illegal crime to do it. Um, and I just think that we don't get, or maybe just I don't watch. Mm-hmm. Again, email us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. We don't get a lot of stories where the crime, oh, sorry, the, the, the cause of why the crime is being done is so blatantly the fault of how society has let people fall through cracks. Hmm. Um, and I, I mean that a lot in Emily's case, but Theo doesn't want to do crime because he likes doing crime. Theo wants to do crime so he can get out of the fucking poverty cycle and uh, make a name for himself and then become legitimate, a.k.a. air quotes. Hmm. Uh, it seems like Yusuf's brother or cousin or or I, I forget, 
and the rest of the family, especially at the end when it kind of turns into a, a bit of a uh, uh, gangster like a, home alone. Yeah, gangster <laughs> home alone. Um, they they are coded in this film uh, doing crime because they want to do crime. Again, we never get time with those characters, and they are they do evil things, so uh, you never really want to. But it's I for both Yusuf and uh, Emily, I felt like it was just a really for me a breath of fresh air of like seeing the machinations of why the crime and, and making and making those machinations emotionally resonant and way more interesting than the crime. Yeah. A lot of times in this the crime, whatever heist you're doing, whatever scam, whatever grift you pull off is like the big draw. And here, I never cared about that. I cared about Emily. Yeah. And that was a really nice change of pace for me in, in, in films dealing with this subject matter. Yeah. And I, you know, again, um, I think I, I think it was when we were discussing the Florida Project. There was a move. There was an article by The Guardian uh, about the depiction of poverty in, on, uh, in American cinema and, and mm. how there seems to be a lack of it. Now, that's that's actually, you know, there there are films, but but. I think uh, we get into the cycle of glamour and we don't want to see or we're not we're certainly not marketed towards the the kind of um, saying similar scenes is the the British kitchen sink drama, which is about people living through poverty and, and you know, trying to trying to live their lives. Um, you know, filmmakers like Ken Loach. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in America, uh, Ramin Barani's film Man Push Cart and Chop Shop. Uh, were really good examples of an early filmmaker really tapping into the world of people who kind of um, go go unseen. Um, and obviously in this case, we've got a movie star at the helm of it. And it's a great role for a movie star. It's a great, like, um, understand. And, and she, you know, like, again, she's also, um, you know, from a middle class kind of upbringing that has suddenly, that is that is through the, the kind of machinations of debt, found herself in a situation where she is doing somewhat not menial tasks but you know like um you know uh non-unionized labor <laughs> you know like she's uh she has to do non-unionized labor that is you know somewhat for a person who has talent and is an artist as she as she is 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 demoralizing you know but like i mean the, i would argue you don't have to have talent to be an artist for have that be demoralizing i would think yeah. i think the way that the that workers in that in those particular fields are treated is demoralized but in, but it's a, you general. know like i think and, and you know it's a it's a heavily political moment to sort of discuss it in that way but it's like it's hard to sort of transpose this story into other countries because crime certainly happens in other countries as well um but you can see that that the thing that's really evident here is the way in which people's choices open up by not being burdened by the economic system at such an early age right like like if you could go to college for free or you know paid for by your taxes um, and make choices then, then you might make different choices about where you're going to end up mm-hmm. um, and might pursue, uh, you know, like other things than, you know, finance or, you know, medical school or whatever. Um, and and I think, you know, it's just a, like, as you say, it's a really telling that the, 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 the you know, the, 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 the part of the title that's really ingenious in my, in my sense is that it, when you read a title like that, Emily the Criminal, um, it's salacious in terms of like, oh, what, what is this crime that she has committed? What is she going to do? And, you know, that sort of lures you in with that kind of, um, uh, well, not f- false advertising, but like some sense of like, oh, what is the thing? It's um, not clickbait if it's true. But 
the the actual the reason the title is that is because of the scene with the mother where she says, you haven't figured out what you want to do yet. What are you going to be? Are you going to be Emily the accountant? Emily the um, banker? Emily the mother? Emily this? Emily that? And the movie is really about the journey for her. You know, so it's in, it's actually um, the label that she's picked for herself in a way and, and less about what the what the, the, the machinations of the plot. And I think it's a really... Um, I, I could imagine reading the screenplay and going, well, that's a really clever title. That's a well, really, so really clever... Um, I, you know, thoughtful idea at the center of this. I think it is that, but I also think it works on a different level too. Of uh, the the self perpetuating cycle. She's Emily the criminal because the system has labeled her Emily the criminal. She can't get a job. She can't get out of the menial labor task. She right. can't get out from under her own way because the system has labeled her Emily the criminal, and she cannot get out from that. Right. Um. And so I think it works on a couple different levels. That's how I took it. But I like, I mean, I, I understood the callback when the mom was doing it. Like, yeah, that was a good, uh, good, they, they said the title of the movie, even though they didn't, but they basically. Yeah, yeah, it was like, ah, you're, you're, you're suddenly Peter Griffin from Family Guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I I think the, and, and, and honestly, again, it's all the subtext of this movie, but especially in, in, our current time, and again, this is recorded uh, December seventh, right? Uh, but the railroads, the impending railroad strike, yep, the now illegal railroad strike, right? Um, fucking such a joke. Um, and the fact that I mean, I just still again the the sort of ongoing de- the lack of debate about healthcare is baffling to me. Sure. Like, there's so many things uh, wrong with uh, the United States at this point. You don't need this podcast to tell you that. Um, It's just, I think, for me personally, even though I I will say, like, the boss at the food delivery place Mm. was, like, a caricature. Like, I felt like that was one moment that, like, popped me out but at the same time, because it was just, like, it was just just anti-union talking points being yelled at her. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, okay, okay. Well, or technically, I mean, technically, reverse pro union talking points being yelled at her. Right. Uh, and those are all true. There's nothing untrue about that. Yeah. And they were just doing it in a very quick pace. Yeah. Um, whereas everything else felt real and lived in, and 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 there were moments of, uh, kind of joy mm. and the freedom that was felt when when the crime was working. And again, not like in a like. We're going on a spree. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was, I'm moving my dream forward. Yeah, or I'm, I'm I can be confident. I can be confident with my friends at a party. Yeah. Like small fucking real shit. Yeah. And uh, God, that was relatable. Yeah. Uh, it it felt. I think actually, to be perfectly honest, at, for as someone who is not engaged in the level of crime that Emily has, <laughs> this movie feels incredibly relatable. Right, and maybe yeah. it's a uniquely uh, U.S. feeling. Yeah, like, uh, but like that was something I was shocked about too. I, I got to be honest with you. I was in, you know, like I, I was in New Zealand recently, and and this happens every time I go to New Zealand. When I try to explain the American healthcare system to New Zealanders, nobody can believe me. Like nobody actually believes me that that that's the way it works. They're Just like, say it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, no. If you talk about like, you know, uh, the 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 fact that. There's no, um, there's no free public system other than Medicare and Medicaid um, that you can be almost held hostage by your job because of the, the medical benefits that are provided to you. And if you don't have that job, then you will now be 
basically paying, you know, up to $1,200 or $1,000 or something like that in, you know, uh, for healthcare every year, which if you don't pay, you will, um, you know, you could suffer dire financial consequences. And then also nobody can believe like, oh, okay, so you've paid $12,000, you know, whatever it is per year for healthcare, depending on which part of the country you live, the health, the, the insurance still won't kick in until you pay an additional $10,000 in the form of a deductible. And then once it does kick in, it'll kick in in a partial payment that has been predetermined. And then when that is, when that is kicked in, it is also based upon your actual geographic location and which choice of doctor you had made, despite not really knowing what choices are available to you. I'm t- I tell you this, Explain that to a foreigner who's not lived in America and you will get this most sort of like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why would anyone live in a system that exists that way? I still can't believe that. Well, actually, I can because, again, you're seeing it with the railroad uh, worker strike. If you look at the news media of like how it's being covered, Hmm. it's, well, we need to we need to have legislation uh, causes because it'll it'll destroy the economy. And Hmm. it's like. They're asking for seven days of sick leave. Yeah. And if and if the system is that fragile, we got a fucking problem. Right. Like like that's bigger than this. That like they're they're putting the the act of the economy slowing down or being hurt on the workers mm-hmm. who are literally the only reason the economy works. Right. Like and and to the medical to the medical mm-hmm. point, the like I. I I Remember just got when we my... clapped on our balconies for the medical heroes that we, oh yeah you know that we well, like but like <laughs> I, I think uh, the the medical um, like the the Obamacare sort of system, which again I will say does do a lot for many 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 low income it's, yeah, it's, it's, groups it's it's a uh, step <laughs> uh, does not work for a lot of people that are not in that group uh, and there's no other option I found the the coverage of um, when the debate was going on about health care, I think uh, either in presidential elections or whenever legislation is being trying to be passed, uh, it's always like, well, you need your freedom of choice. You don't want the government telling you what. <laughs> what and it's, it's like, the strangest but there's, argument but against there's, it, right? But the thing is, America is so blinded by the idea that they have choice mm. that they never stop and look that if they can actually make one. Yeah. Like, it's this weird, like fetishization of freedom when you are actually just shackled to the fucking ground monetarily. And it's like, I do not understand how, what level of mental illness you have to have to, to believe in that, that system or to believe that, I mean, I guess, (laughs) uh, and, and, and that again, capitalism swinging it back to this movie (laughs) is the driving factor as to why every character of merit is doing the things that they are doing or and, refusing to do the things. And doing. I like that what happens is, is that Emily gets introduced to a, to a second economy where barter and trade is very different to the, to the central economy. So uh, in this secondary economy, what she, is, um, what she is in danger of is she is no longer uh, able to receive uh, legal help. She can't go to the police or anything. So when somebody tries to rob her, it is over to her own wits to try and survive it. And, you know, like she has to make choices about these things because she is now in an economy where she doesn't have protections like she used to have. Not mm-hmm. that those protections were much used to her anyway. Um, but, you know, I, I really love that there's this sort of secondary world, an underworld, so to speak, um, that she now is exposed to. Vampires! And- <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, vampires. Um, and I like, you know, like that at the beginning of the uh, of the induction process, which becomes a key speech uh, in this film, there's this kind of there's a there's a saying, you know, the people that are being called in are very clearly not criminals. And right. there's an almost brazenness with which they are being asked to do something criminal because they're being told by Yusuf in this film, um, look, you're uh, I have to be honest with you. You're going to make $200 in an hour here, but you're going to do something illegal. Nobody is going to get hurt, and you are not going to hurt anyone. The verbiage of that yeah. is so important. Yeah. And I, I caught this right away, and I loved it so much. It's yeah. like you're, you, mm. person he's talking to, are yeah. going to make $200, and you're going to do something illegal. Yeah. When they're speaking about it, and they even say, like, we've done nothing wrong here, nothing we're doing. You can go leave and tell whoever you want about it. We haven't done shit. Yeah. Like, because they haven't. Yeah. And it's very, very, very clever. It's very telling, very clever. Um, and, and obviously this becomes the central um, speech that Emily now gives. And, and I, I love as well that there's this kind of, it always reminds me of the, the do you remember the, uh, uh, the Day After Tomorrow film where um, Americans uh, uh, suddenly like trying to escape to Mexico? Uh, is, that, is that at the beginning of the film, Yusuf has come from Lebanon to America to make something himself and Emily now goes to South America to make something herself, and she brings the criminality uh, that she had been taught in America to another country. Yeah. And speaks it in Spanish. And, and like, she is, um, by doing that, she has gone to another country where she is uh, essentially given some more semblance of freedom of choice to pursue her artistic career um, and, you know, to, like, go to the beach and do those kinds of things. Um, but she also, you know, continues the training that she had learnt uh, from Yusuf at the uh, at the beginning of the film. I think it's a really, um, you know, yeah, again, the the, the sort of uh, the, the gangster Home Alone story, a um, little, it, it's fine. It, it, it is perfectly functional mm-hmm. um, and, and works really well. But the things that really, really excel here are, you know, the scene with Gina Gershon and accepting the internship. I just, I love the, the, the indignation with which uh, uh, Emily has at that. You know, it's like, oh, wait, okay, so what, what, what are the hours? It's a regular nine to five and I, what do I get paid? You know, like, and it's just this amazing thing, which is like, it's so simple. I think the scenes of, of self-actualization are actually my favorite. So the ones where the she's getting robbed and her friend's dog, who she's dog-sitting, gets right. stolen. Yeah. Uh, and and even her choices, again, we're deep into spoilers now, but you're about 50 minutes into a podcast about Emily the Criminal, so uh, sorry, not sorry. Um the, when she chooses to leave the injured Yusuf behind and right, save her own yeah. ass and take the money, like she, she makes choices that are directly like she's not. It's funny. I I would even posit she is not a bad person. Like hmm. I I would I would I, she is making choices that hurt people by mm-hmm. the end, but she is always sort of looking out for herself. Yeah. And I don't even think. It's weird to say looking out for yourself in a non-selfish way. Yeah. Um, because she's only... She's she's taking control of situations that are vastly out of her control. Right. And I think there is something, uh, despite the criminal activity, despite whether the morals of, of when she leaves a, a injured uh, comrade or... or 
or threatens or hurts people that are trying to threaten or hurt her, one thing you can say is she has fucking agency over the situation at the end of that day. And I think that is also something that I really enjoyed seeing. Yeah. Um, th- she is a person that, and again, played brilliantly by Aubrey Plaza. Um, yeah. the, the, she's a person, she's a character that, um, due, due to her mistakes that she has made and we're, we're somewhat clear on them, but not crazily. So, so, so though sometimes young when she made those mistakes and yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the system that, uh, she it was, uh, bound to, mm-hmm. uh, would always keep her down for that. And then she found a secondary system. And when that got broken, she took that system and reinvented it somewhere else for her elsewhere. And just the entire thing is just Emily, Emily is just making fucking moves, to put it lack of a better term, and it's and it works so well. It's it's for as dark as it gets, and for as criminal as it gets, it is. I found it oddly inspirational. Hmm. That's, a, that's um, okay. I I I don't think I'm on the same page, but I, I I I'm I'm glad that 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 was the case. Yeah, because I think it's a it's a it's a testament to how powerful uh, how well the story is told. Yeah, and not inspirational to like go do crime. No, of course like, not. That's not. But what, like, you know, like inspirational <laughs> to be like, wow, this system fucking sucks. You know what? Find your own way around the goddamn system. Yeah, yeah, and they, like, like and we don't, don't think get... of uh, Ocean's Eleven as inspirational to you know to to go do crime. But but here's the <laughs> weird thing: mm. that movie sets it up to be, and while it is fantastical, right. I don't think it is inspirational. This movie is not fantastical, and I find the acts of the characters inspirational. They're both doing crime. Yeah. Uh, but, they go, and, but they both and, do the time. <laughs> and and you, could, you could argue that they're both doing crime in the worlds that they are set up against, against corpos. Like against giant conglomerates or billionaires, faceless, faceless uh, you yeah, know, yeah, faceless. Uh... Some some call that victimless crime because <laughs> the. But regardless, one feels inspirational to me and one doesn't, and it's not it's not Ocean's Eleven. I the 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 I, I keep bringing up Ocean's Eleven because uh, there's a scene I, I I found the opening scenes where she's being essentially interrogated. Uh, about her history you know there's just a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful opening scene Mm -hmm. where she is being asked hey uh we understand you have a criminal record uh or you know something has happened uh on your record uh we have not run uh a police uh history on you can you tell us what happened and so she tells this story about what happened about you know having a dui i wasn't as drunk as my friends and then he produces the police record to say well that's not what i have here on the police record and it's just like it's it's beautiful because it shows the level of uh, distrust that is in the system built in. It shows what she's up against in this situation because there's no right way to negotiate the fact that she's just lied in this situation. Yeah. But you can completely understand why she lied in that situation yep. as well, thinking that if I lie, it'll just make the situation much easier. Um and so, she did it smart. She, she the way she talked around that interviewer in the very beginning of the thing. She asked leading probing uh, questions to see what information that person had, and he actively tricked her. Yeah, like yeah. And then, she wasn't and then, just blatantly like. I know people that like just throw out tall tales all the damn time. That like right. you know will get caught in an instant. She's not doing that. She is being careful and still getting fucked. Of like, course, and and I love that in that you know as a setup for the character. You know, like, uh, he says, look, can we start over and try this again? And she just says, no. Uh, you know, 
fuck that. You you really, you know, and, and she is temperamental, you know, like she could be more careful, but I think that's... She's temperamental, but she's right. She's she's not wrong, you know, yeah. like that, that, that is, uh, that's the Actually, crazy thing. I want to take it back. She's not temperamental. She is, she is uh, assertive in in her belief of what is going on. Right. That's yeah. not temperamental. That's yeah. that's uh that's uh hardened, Confident. I guess. Yeah. Confident. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um yeah. No, I think I think it's such a great scene. But the reason I I bring it up is it did remind me of uh a scene in Steven Soderbergh's other film Out of Sight where George Clooney is being interviewed for a job um you know believing that he's going to be getting um kind of a you know a job as a favor from someone he protected while in prison only to realize that he's been given a job of like a shitty uh a shitty paid salary as a security guard and he he makes that real and it's sort of told in a really similar way and he makes that realization and walks out and robs a bank um you know it's it's a it, it it there was echoes of that kind of soderbergian understanding of character uh, and consequence. I think that I think that's the thing. There, there's a real clear um, sense to the script of like action and consequence, which is it's just it, it's it's hard to make. It is much harder to make something this easy to watch look this simple. Like mm. it, you know, like it is. It's complicated, but it looks simple. It never, at any point, there's never, there's never a moment like we've had with the Fablemans where we're going, wait, what's happening in this movie? Right. There's never that. There's always just a clear sense of, well, that's what she's going to have to do now, and I guess we're going to go along with it, you know, because uh, because that is the the circumstances that she is in now. I uh, I I flat out loved it. It's such an easy easy recommendation, easy watch, um, and with many layers underneath the. Um, the kind of salacious, you know, criminality to it, uh, it's built on a really solid foundation um, that makes it eminently rewatchable as well. I think it's great. Yeah. It's just so good. Uh, agreed. Uh, hey, everyone. This has been the only podcast about the film Emily the Criminal. Go watch it. Uh, Shahir, when you're not doing crime, <laughs> where can folks find you? You can find me doing time at my website, www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are uh, not printing credit cards to pay off your medical debt, where can people find you? Oh, the only printing I'm doing is 3D minis for Dungeons and Dragons, baby. Mm-hmm. But you can find me doing that at my website, M-E-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, period, M-S-K on Twitter. That was a big mumble, but you've heard it before. Also, please check out the good works we're doing over at Extra Credits. Uh, as I said, we are doing a channel split, so if you go over to that new Extra Credits Gaming channel and sub and ring the bell and watch the episode, actually, we are, Shahir, giving away gaming consoles. We're doing a raffle for two months. We're giving away four gaming consoles. Which which Uh, gaming consoles? Uh, whichever ones you want. We have wow. lists on the on the uh, things. It's either a, a Switch, uh, Xbox, a PlayStation Five, or a Steam Deck. Ooh, how um, is the Steam Deck, by the way? Uh, I hear great things. Uh, uh, Alex Lowspec Gamer, who is a good friend of Nebula Confidant, uh, he had one when we all spoke at PAX West, mm, yeah. and it's an impressive piece of machinery. It's one that I don't need, yeah, but I like covet. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> um, to get, right? Like I, I was no, gonna... not anymore. No, oh. two weeks. That's oh, okay, it. great. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, though, just to finish that thought, uh, please uh, go go check out that stuff, and you can enter if you find the secret phrases in one video on the original channel into the uh, into the comments of the other one. All the rules are on the descriptions. You can go check it out. It's very, very fun. I always remember the secret password from uh, the cable guy, uh, where Jim Carrey oh. references. The password 
is vagina. Oh, well, no, it's not that, sadly. Uh, um, hey, and also, you're having a white elephant party this weekend, and I'm only excited about this. I may not be able to attend, but because I have picked the perfect white elephant gift. Can you explain what a white elephant party is? It, it, white it, elephant, it does feel AKA, like it has racial undertones, but I'm not sure. It does, but it, I don't think it does. Where does the term white elephant come from? So I think, so So to be honest, the reason why I continually, it's, it's a Yankee swap, too, which also has bad connotations, <laughs> okay, depending on yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. But basically, it's a gift exchange where you uh, people draw numbers out of a hat and put a bunch of uh, presents under a certain uh, price value uh, on a table. And the first person who draws that, you know, the, whoever draws number one goes up, picks, open a present. Oh my God, it's a teddy bear. Person two goes, that person can either pick a new present and open it or steal person one's present. Oh. And the person who keeps going and going and going and going, uh, the later numbers can steal whatever they want, but then the person who has number one can make one final steal at the very end. And things can only be stolen three times in a setting. There are many different rules for this. I, I call it white elephant. Because in one of those things, I have a staple of my living room decor, which is a literal two-foot-tall porcelain white elephant Okay, that I won at a white elephant. So I... it... And we put the we put the white elephant in the center of the coffee table. We pile all the presents around it, so it's a literal white elephant. I am very proud of the prison I picked up, or the, I the am presents. Too. And uh, that, I am too. By the way, that is the the event in which uh, I get all of my friends to give their year in review films. Which ah, yeah. uh, Shahir, I don't think you've actually have you been to one of these yet. I have been to one of them. I don't think I've popped into the room to. Oh, no, I right. have popped into the room because I pretended to be That's uh, a, right. new, a new person. No, I mean, I didn't pretend to be. No. Was, uh, I, I wasn't there. There was just another person. Of course, of course. Who, uh, who so, described me as the most handsomest podcast host. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, oh, that, that the guy. person was so wise. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm very excited because I love, I love filming those things yeah. uh, with with my friends. and just he- I, I like hearing what my friends who I don't get to talk with movies uh, with a lot are watching. Like me. Yeah, right? like, like you. So you're going to talk to me the whole night. Uh, about movies. Sure. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for listening. Next week, we'll be back with, uh, uh, let me check my notes here. Um, hold on. Is it uh, Avatar? A, a movie. Is it Avatar? Uh, no, it can't be. No, it can't be. Uh, I haven't got tickets to Avatar. I'm going on the 17th. I don't know when it gets released. Uh, okay. Well, after the 17th. <laughs> yeah, but like if it was okay, next week, I yeah. think we have to do something else next week. Maybe we do that fancy movie. Maybe we do <laughs> the Guard- fancy Gian Di- yeah. Or maybe we do the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. It's going to be one of those two. <laughs> Gian, uh, <laughs> Gian Delman or Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. They steal Kevin Bacon. Us in. Only movie plot. I know our audience. I know what you got. Prove me wrong. What? No, they would Delman pick the fancy. Heads. They would pick the fancy movie. Would they? I, I think our, we should do a Twitter poll. Yeah. I think our audience would pick the okay. fancy movie. I agree with you. I'm going to put a Twitter poll right now, and it's going to be Gian Delman versus Guardians of the Galaxy holiday movie. And I'm going to be so disappointed if the like, Guardians of the Galaxy. There's wins. no way that Guardians of the Galaxy wins. I, I there know. is there is there is zero percent chance. I don't know. I I do not think. I have opinions on it. I just, I, I, we could do an hour, but I don't think, I don't think anyone gives a fuck. Like, the, uh, like, and that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, like, can you leave the poll up for, for a week? Not quite a week. Right. Like five days. Yeah, let's leave it up for a while. Let's get, let's get, let's. Uh, and you should, you should really write it, uh, be like these two, these two quintessential cinematic pieces. Christmas Which movies. would you like? Christmas yeah, Christmas, Christmas movies. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we will talk at you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.